It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. My favorite story of the day, absolutely, bar none, involves an ABC correspondent named Will Reeve, who was appearing on Good Morning America from home, as so many of us do now these days, but he misjudged the camera angle, and you could see that he, well, wasn't wearing any pants. And so the anchors were laughing about it. I guess he was embarrassed. Uh, but he took it in stride, and then uh, later on, he went on Twitter to clarify. He wasn't in his underwear. He was actually just wearing shorts. You couldn't quite tell. And then in another tweet, he said, man, the more I look at this, the more thigh I see. Yikes. Yikes, indeed. I've never quite done that, but I certainly, because, you know, most of the time when you're especially a remote guest, the shot is sort of from the waist up, uh, where I've worn jeans or, let's just say, uh, you know, not the the, uh, the the suit pants that come with the suit. Um, I don't know. The more I do this at home, the more I think, you know, why the hell with this grown-up attire? Let's all just wear sweats, flannel shirt, whatever. People will understand, right? Uh, there's some new findings out from Pew Research. Uh, the embargo has just been lifted. I was uh, looking at this yesterday. Um, so 9 out of 10 Americans, actually it's 87%, following the coronavirus news very or fairly closely. It makes you wonder about the other 13%. But listen to this. 71% of adults in the United States say they need to take breaks from coronavirus news, and 43% say it leaves them feeling worse emotionally. Well, you know what? I need to take breaks from coronavirus news, and I'm in the news business. I mean, there are times when I just got to turn it off, put the phone down, hit the mute button, because it just wears on you. I mean, there's a certain repetitive aspect, obviously, to 24-7 news immersion. But, I mean, who among us doesn't feel like, okay, enough for today. I don't want to read about, read about any more deaths or dying or testing or, you know, all these places like hospitals and meatpacking plants uh, that have been affected. But by the way, the president's saying he has signed an executive order to try to keep some of these meat processing plants open because there are warnings from Tyson Foods and others there's going to be a meat shortage and a poultry shortage because at some of these plants, um, you know, a lot of workers have gotten sick. And so the unions are saying we don't want our people working there unless they have adequate protective equipment. And I certainly feel sorry for them. But it's just amazing, given the multi-billion dollar business of, of meat and poultry in this country, that, you know, there's just a few choke points where if you take them out of service, then people can't get hamburgers and fried chicken and pork chops or whatever else they like to eat. Um, also, interesting uh, note here in terms of this uh, Pew survey. So in the category of do you think the media have greatly exaggerated the risks of COVID-19? The last survey, March 10th to 16th, 37% um, said yes. And now I believe it's just 24%. So it shows you that things have gotten so much worse since mid-March that people are now revising their view of uh, how uh, of the media sounding the alarm about a what turned into a pandemic, but it was not quite clear. So, for example, on March 10th, that that was going to be the case. In the category of not taking the risks seriously enough or not taking the risks, uh, considering them at all, President Trump has been remarkably stable. Um, 52% back in early to mid-March said he wasn't taking the risk seriously enough or at all. 55% say the same thing now. So not much of a change, despite the fact that, you know, we're now up to a million cases, which, you know, at one time might have seemed unthinkable. 
uh, in somewhat lighter news, well, I guess it's related because Boris Johnson, you know, was in the ICU with the coronavirus, the prime minister of uh, the UK. Uh, he and his fiance, Carrie Simmons, have announced the birth of their baby boy. Congratulations. The boy's healthy. Mother is doing well. Glad to hear this. He's 55. She's 32. Former official in Johnson's conservative party. Um, they met when Johnson was still married to his second wife, Marina Wheeler, with whom he had four children. This came up in the campaign because I'm just reading here from the, I guess it's the BBC. Johnson had a series of affairs with other women over the years and has refused to confirm how many children he has. Here's the quote. I love my children very much, but they are not standing at this election. Uh, What I find interesting is, you know, they're going to get married anyway. I think if it was in the U.S., you'd get married before the baby was born. But, you know, more relaxed attitudes in Europe, I suppose. So congratulations to the prime minister. I'm glad he's recovered. And I guess uh, there will be a wedding. It won't quite be on the par of a royal wedding, I predict. Also, I talked about this uh, uh, with Dana Perino on Fox News on Monday. And I believe I've talked about it. Yeah, I've talked about it on the podcast as well. One of the federal, one of the loans from the federal bailout bill, that $2 trillion bill, uh, went to Axios, uh, the political website based in the suburban Virginia, just outside D.C. And I was asked what I thought about it. And I had to stop and think. And what I said was, well, I don't think a company, because Axios has just under 200 employees, should be prevented uh, from getting one of these loans to keep their employees on the payroll just because they're in the media business. But I hasten to add... You know, Axios has these wealthy backers, including Comcast, NBC, including Laureen Powell Jobs, uh, uh, who is, of course, Steve Jobs' widow. And, you know, the other way. So Axios has now caved to the bad publicity and is returning the loan. And Axios, uh, to his credit, the founder of Axios, Jim Van de Heij, has written a piece about this. He said, we, ba- we did it. Uh, he said, there's been a public backlash against a variety of companies for taking the loan, including us. Some critics say media companies like ours should not qualify, period. Others argue that venture-backed startups should seek capital elsewhere, even if it hurts the business. What changed? One, uh, this has become a lot more politically polarized, says Van de Heij. We And two, we continue to explore other capital. Over the past week, a new alternative source emerged, giving us confidence to turn back the federal money. Uh, we're disclosing our thinking with the same transparency as we disclosed the idea that we would take the loan. Uh, we were trying to protect... Our 190 employees, our physical events business was way down. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm sure they're hurting. Uh, but hopefully, says Van Hy, this will uh, free up the money for other strong, small businesses that are struggling to find capital. All right. Story number one, uh, I think, is about Joe Biden. Uh, I'll start with the Hillary endorsement. So yesterday, the 2016 presidential nominee, Hillary Clinton, to absolutely nobody's surprise, did a long sort of live stream with uh, the former vice president. Obviously, they both served uh, under Barack Obama. And she endorsed him and she said great things about him. I want to add my voice to the many who've endorsed you to be our president. She told Biden, just think what a difference it would make right now if we had a president who not only listened to the science, put facts over fiction, says Hillary, But brought us together, showed the kind of compassion and caring that we need from our president and which Joe Biden has been exemplifying through his entire career. She goes on to say, think what a difference it would make if we had a real president, not just one who played one on TV. Okay, let's just say that Hillary Clinton would very much like to see Donald Trump out of office. Uh, There was absolutely no doubt 
that they would do this if there was no coronavirus. I mean, it got more attention than the usual endorsement, but, you know, it's still completely and totally overshadowed. They'd be at some event somewhere with a huge crowd, and they'd be, you know, and you'd have video, or let's just say higher quality video, it would get on TV. Um, But listen to this. Um, The endorsement unfolded, and this is a piece in Politico, uh, which I talked about yesterday. Well, I'll talk about that later. Uh, A piece in Politico, Uh, saying that as Biden is planning to pick a woman running mate, decision that will have a political impact as he faces accusations, which he denies of sexually assaulting a former staffer, Tara Reid, in the early 1990s. Female running mate, this is a positive spin, could help diffuse tensions over the allegations. Although progressives fret it's an unfair burden placed on a prospective vice presidential nominee, just as Clinton, Hillary that is, was weighed down by several allegations against her husband, former President Bill Clinton. Well, there weren't allegations against Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton did what he was accused of doing, certainly with Monica Lewinsky, also with Jennifer Flowers, and then you get into some of the other women. So uh, what this points out is that uh, in the past, Hillary Clinton has, uh, has said, and some people are playing the clip on television, speaking of women who have these accusations against men of harassment, assault, you have a right to be heard and you have a right to be believed. So... Here's Brad Parscale, uh, Biden's campaign manager. There's no greater concentration of Democratic establishment than Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton together. Um, Now, uh, Hillary says that uh, she wishes they were doing this together, but they can't. Um, But here's the thing. Politico itself uh, has uh, has a separate piece talking about how the Biden, the sexual assault allegations against Joe Biden are starting to break through. And I've noticed this. So I did this, I did a long segment on Media Buzz two weeks ago. This was after the New York Times, 19 days after Tara Reid went public, followed a day later by the Washington Post, which had also interviewed Tara Reid, went public with these allegations. But then it kind of went quiet and CNN still didn't do it and other networks still didn't do it. And those newspapers kind of did their thing and then moved on. And the reason that this has changed, that this has changed dramatically is that Business Insider, uh, the online website, covers business, has original reporting, has in the past day or two provided more corroboration. And this makes crystal clear. And I don't know whether these allegations are true. It's a quarter century ago. Biden denies it. Biden staffers who um, Tara Reid says she complained to deny it. She's changed her story to the Washington Post. She didn't initially say to the Post that there was any um, actual penetration uh, as opposed to Biden just touching her shoulders and her neck. But Business Insider now quotes a former neighbor, Linda Lacasse, uh, who uh, says she was told by Reed in 1995 or 96, so that's either two or three years later after the alleged incident, that she'd been assaulted by Biden. Here is the quotes from uh, Linda Lacoste to Business Insider. I remember her saying, here was this person she was working for, and she idolized him, and he kind of put her up against a wall, and he put his head up her skirt, and he put his fingers inside her. She felt like she was assaulted, and she really didn't feel there was anything she could do. She was crying. She was upset, and the more she talked about it, the more she started crying. I remember saying she needed to file a police report. Now, Business Insider also found a former work colleague, Lorraine Sanchez, from the same period, saying, that Reed had told her that a boss in Washington harassed her, but this woman, Sanchez, did not recall whether she named Biden. So, 
as a result, here's this other political piece I was looking for a moment ago, it has metastasized into a serious campaign liability, entering the political mainstream just as Biden seeks to unite a fractious Democratic Party behind him. The drip of news is forcing high-profile senators, including potential VP candidates, to defend Biden. And it is altering his messaging at a critical time. Absolutely, positively, no question about that. So moving right along here, um, here's a piece in the Washington Post by columnist Megan McArdle. And she's comparing it to the Brett Kavanaugh situation. And she says, you know, one might argue that we shouldn't make political decisions based on accusations this old, unless there's credible evidence of a pattern of such misconduct. It becomes impossible after such a long period of time to evaluate such accusations fairly. Then she has to admit, acknowledge, concede, that would have been a very good position to take on Brett Kavanaugh, not just because there was so little solid evidence. Remember, Christine Blasey Ford never found a single witness who could even say that they witnessed them being in the same room, let alone uh, the sexual harassment and assault that she uh, claimed. A decent society, says Megan McArdle, allows for rehabilitation. When we can't get clear evidence of a crime, if there's no evidence of later wrongdoing, we should err on the side of hoping that the accuser was mistaken or that the offender has reformed. But if you insisted that Kavanaugh must go, as so many liberals did, in the media, and of course Democrats who voted against him, it's hard to argue for mercy now without saying the painful words, I was wrong. Absolutely, positively. Uh, and here's Stacey Abrams telling the Huffington Post, of course she's trying out, the former Georgia gubernatorial candidate, I believe women deserve to be heard, and I believe that has happened here. The allegations have been heard and looked into, and for too many women, that is not the case. New York Times conducted a thorough investigation, says Stacey Abrams. I, it, it does nothing but confirm what I already know about Joe Biden. So obviously any woman who wants to be Biden's running mate, and it will be a woman, has to deal with this. All right, story number two after that long wind-up. Politico has now issued a correction after a really egregious error about Donald Trump and the Bank of China. So this was sort of muddied. I didn't get into it, but I've been following it closely. In its correction, Politico said it is committed to journalism that gets its facts straight. We regret we fell short in this case. Boy, did Politico fall short. No question about it. So last Friday, Politico made this very serious accusation. Here was the headline. Trump owes tens of millions to the Bank of China and the loan is due soon. Loan is due soon. Well, you can absolutely understand why that's a big deal because China, of course, the role that it played in lying and covering up the origins of the coronavirus, also the, the trade negotiations with China. And if, if the Trump organization, as political claim, was in debt to that degree, this is a state-owned bank, the Bank of China. It's not even a private enterprise. So it goes back to a, a nearly billion-dollar refinancing deal in 2012 that Bank of China was one of the banks that struck this deal with a real estate adventure, which not adventure, but venture, which the Trump organization had a substantial minority interest. And the loan Politico said is due in 2020. But here's the problem. On Friday night, the Bank of China told Politico it had sold off that debt shortly after the 2012 deal. So for the past eight years, the Trump company hasn't owned any money to the Bank of China. Uh, and the Chinese bank says it doesn't own any interest in any Trump property. So it was completely and totally wrong. So Politico went back, modified the story, but didn't issue this formal correction until Monday night. I don't understand this. This is a major league error. This is a huge error to make that kind of accusation about a company owned by the President of the United States. 
Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Story number three. Uh, I'm looking at this in the Washington Examiner. There's a bunch of search warrants involving Roger Stone, of course, has been convicted, who, of course, uh, his appeal was turned down at the trial level, and he could be heading to prison. And the search warrants show that, in fact, there was significant communication between Roger Stone, the former informal Trump advisor and gadfly, a longtime friend of Donald J. Trump, and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Back in, uh, excuse me, back in 2017, they were going back and forth, and uh, Stone said, I am Assange's only hope for a pardon. And Assange wrote back under uh, uh, an account called Target Account 2, thanking Stone for an ace article in InfoWars, the conspiracy site, and telling him that U.S. intel engages in sleight of hand. And then Stone wrote back to him, if the U.S. government moves on you, I will bring down the entire house of cards. And with the trumped-up sexual assault charges dropped, I don't know of any crime you need to be pardoned for. Those are the allegations against Assange, for which he uh, had to take refuge in an embassy. Assange writes back, between CIA and DOJ, they're doing quite a lot. The DOJ's side that's coming most strongly from those obsessed with taking down Trump, trying to squeeze us into a deal. Stone writes back, I am doing everything possible to address the issues at the highest level of government. So Stone put out a statement saying, look, there are private communications here, but they don't prove any crimes. There's no evidence to this day that I knew about the source or contents, says Roger Stone, of the WikiLeaks disclosure. This is, of course, the hacked material from the DNC and various Democrats prior to their public release. Story number four. This is fascinating to me uh, as a native New Yorker. So you have Bill de Blasio, the mayor, lashing out at members of the Hasada community in Brooklyn, in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn, because um, late last night, he went with a bunch of police officers to help, or at least to oversee, the dispersal of a crowd, hundreds of mourners who had gathered for the funeral of a rabbi, a rabbi who, in fact, died of the coronavirus. Now, the Hasidic community is known for, you know, large turnouts at funerals. And look, your heart has to go out to these people. A rabbi died. They want to show their respects. He dies of the coronavirus, so they all show up. But, of course, it violates the social distancing rules because if they're all in one place and some of them get the virus and then they spread it to other people, you can see why that's a problem. So in a series of tweets, Mayor de Blasio denounced the gathering um, and he said, uh, let me get the full, uh, he said, something absolutely unacceptable happened in Williamsburg tonight, a large funeral gathering in the middle of this pandemic. When I, when I heard, I went there myself to ensure the crowd was dispersed. And what I saw will not be tolerated so long as we are fighting the coronavirus. Um, he said he had this message for the Jewish community and all communities. Um, now, it turns out, according to the New York Times reporting on this hometown matter in Brooklyn, that the authorities have dispersed several well-attended religious gatherings um, since these restrictions on large gatherings were enacted, including weddings and funerals in various New York neighborhoods with large Jewish populations. Um, the funeral of Rabbi Chaim Mertz appealed, the first time, appealed to be the first time the mayor directly involved. And so here's the, the Blasio post I was looking for. My message to the Jewish community and all communities, is this simple. The time for warnings have passed. I have instructed the NYPD to proceed immediately to summons or even arrest those who gather in large groups. This is about stopping this disease and saving lives, 
period. Well, as you might imagine, this did not go over too well in the Hasidic community. Um, Chaim Deutsch, a city council member who represents that section of Brooklyn, or a section of Brooklyn with a large Orthodox Jewish population, said this has to be a joke. Did the mayor of NYC really just single out one specific ethnic community, a community that has been the target of increasing hate crimes in his city, that's true, as being noncompliant? Has he been to a park lately? What am I saying? Of course he has. There was a photo of de Blasio and his wife, the First Lady, walking around in, I don't know if it was Central Park or Prospect Park. They seemed to be distant from other people in the park. I didn't have any problem with that, but he took a lot of heat for that. Um, But singling out one community is ridiculous, says the city council member Deutsch. Every neighborhood has people who are being noncompliant. To speak to an entire ethnic group as though we are all flagrantly violating precautions is offensive. It's stereotyping, and it's inviting anti-Semitism. I'm truly stunned. So, I mean, de Blasio is just sort of caught in the middle here. Uh, If he goes there, and obviously he did this to get publicity, and he calls out the Hispanic community, and he says, this is my message to the Jewish community. Oh, and by the way, to other communities. He angers a, a lot of people in his city, and he's the mayor of the entire city. On the other hand, if hundreds of people turn out, even in these tragic circumstances, and my heart goes out, during this period to anybody anywhere in America who can't go, has to have a virtual funeral, who can't go to pay final respects to a loved one who has died, whatever they died of. It is just such a heartbreaking circumstance uh, not to be able to do that. Uh, And so de Blasio is caught in the middle. Obviously, he's pissed some people off. Maybe he handled it in a ham-handed fashion. He could have let the NYPD handle it. He'd have to go there and raise the profile. And he could have worded what he said on Twitter more carefully. But at the same time, he doesn't want these large gatherings to continue. It's just there's no good answer here. Like, everybody is unhappy. And since de Blasio, not all that popular in the city of York. Remember when he ran for president and he got about 12 votes? I mean, that was an ego trip to end all ego trips. Anyway, he's finishing out his term. And this was a stumble, to say the least. But as I say, I can kind of see all sides. All right. Story number five. I should have mentioned this at the top. Baseball might be coming back. Now, USA Today runs this story every day. Baseball has new plans. It might do this. It might do that. And I've talked about it on the podcast. This one seems like it might be a little bit more serious. The earlier incarnations were that all the teams would get together and they would play only in Arizona because there were facilities there and it's nice and warm and blah, blah, blah. Um, Now, that's not happening. But baseball does seem to be, uh, it's a dream scenario, says USA Today. Maybe it just might work. You know, maybe it'll fall apart. But here's the story. Major League Baseball officials have become cautiously optimistic this week. Every story is sort of like, well, it could happen, it might not happen. That the season will start in late June, no later than July 2nd. Man, that would be great. Playing at least 100 regular season games, according to three executives with knowledge of the talks. And baseball would be played, not only would be played, it would be played, all the teams would play in their own Major League ballparks with no fans. Well, look, obviously you're not going to have I mean, the rest of the season is shot if you're talking about having, you know, tens of thousands of people go to the ballpark. That just ain't happening. But what if you could do it in such a way, maybe all the players would have to be tested, uh, where they played in their home ballpark. So that cuts down on travel. Uh, And more to that, more about that in just a second. Um, No fans, but it's televised. So sports-hungry America gets to watch this. Yes, baseball can be a contact sport um, at times. Uh, so I can see where it would be a risk for the players, and the union would have to approve this, I am sure. But under this plan, now being considered by MLB, 
instead of having an American League and a National League, and this is hard to kind of wrap your head around, there would be three divisions, ten teams in each, or roughly, in which teams play only within their own divisions. So the good thing about that is they're, they're split up by geography. You could forget about the AL and the NL. I mean, this would be, you know, since the two leagues merged, what, in 1903? This would be the first time you wouldn't have an American League and a National League. But it would all be based on geography. So under this plan, you would have a lot of national rivalries. So you'd have an East Division. You'd have the New York Yankees and the Mets. You'd have uh, the Washington Nationals and the Baltimore Orioles, both in the same region. You'd have Boston, Philadelphia Phillies, and Pittsburgh Pirates, not close by, but certainly in the same state. And you'd have Miami, Tampa Bay, Toronto. In the West Division, you'd have the L.A. Dodgers and the Angels, both in the same area. You'd have the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland Athletics, right, the A's right across the uh, bay. And San Diego Padres, Arizona, Colorado, Texas Rangers, Houston Naturals. So you'd have the two Texas teams. Texas Rangers, Houston Naturals, also the Seattle Mariners. Then you'd have this central division where you would have Chicago Cubs and Chicago White Sox, Milwaukee Brewers, St. Louis Cardinals and Kansas City Royals. They're not that far apart. Cincinnati Reds and Cleveland Indians, two Ohio teams, plus Minnesota, Atlanta, and Detroit. I kind of like the idea. I'd love to see baseball back. I don't know if this will actually happen. I don't know what it would be like to play in fans in stadiums with no fans, but it'd be a hell of a lot better than no baseball at all. So I vote for it. I don't know. Maybe it's pie in the sky. We'll keep you posted. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're not going to any large gatherings that you're encountering, that you're using uh, social distancing that the only sports you're doing is, you know, watching uh, the Michael Jordan documentary on ESPN or the, you know, a lot of networks are replaying old games. You can get this online now, the old championship games. I mean, we'll take anything, folks. Uh, I hope that if you're in an area where there's gradual reopening, that it's being done in a safe manner, that you're able to go back to work, if that's possible in what you do uh, and where you live. I hope we'll see more states doing this. But, of course, there's a great balancing act here for President Trump, for Congress to do it safely. And by the way, just before I sign off here, where are, how on earth is the House not coming back to work? Why doesn't the House go to remote voting? So the House is not coming back next week. The Senate is. And Nancy Pelosi wanted to do remote voting. The Republicans objected, not clear why. They don't want to come back, and that's understandable. There's been a bunch of members and staffers and Capitol Police who've gotten the coronavirus. They don't want to be all under the same dome. At the same time, we are in the middle of this huge pandemic. And what? And Congress is not coming back to work, at least half the Congress? This is crazy town. I hope there's a lot of heat on it, and they come up with a solution. If that solution is remote voting, fine. They should be able to function the way all these other businesses are having to function, including, by the way, the television business, I say, as I'm broadcasting from my home. Hey, get us on Apple, iTunes, Google Play, or foxnewspodcast.com. We'll see you tomorrow with more buzzing. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.